Have you ever wanted to dive deeper into scripture? If so, you're in luck, because every day there's a new scripture reflection from the thoughtful staff at America Media, thinking through big questions together, like, what do Catholics believe about guardian angels? And what can Gen Zers take away from the Gospels? If you're already a subscriber, you can access these reflections in your email inbox or on our website. If you'd like to become a digital subscriber, it's easy to do. Just visit americamagazine.org slash subscribe, and you'll have full access to America's Scripture Reflections. And welcome to Jesuitical, a podcast by the young, hip, and lay editors of America Media. That lay part means we aren't Jesuits, but we work with them. Join us each week for a smart Catholic take on faith, culture, and the news, often over drinks. I'm Ashley McKinless, and I'm joined by Zach Davis. Good to be with you, Ashley. And I'm really excited because we got an exemption last week from our, our Lenten fast of mm-hmm. uh, not drinking on the show. Father Matt gave that to us, is, you know, superior of America Magazine. But this week, I don't think we need one. I think we can carry on with drinks. And why is that? Well, I'm glad you asked. This Friday, when this episode drops, is the Solemnity of the Annunciation. And I do not believe that you're supposed to be fasting. Um, So like, for example, Catholics can eat meat this Friday. Okay. Um, So it's one of the rare like Lenten meat Fridays. And so I think we're also exempt from our penance. So that uh, is very Jesuitical of you, Zach. I I was accused of Jesuitical (laughs) thinking by some people when I proposed this, but I'm confident in it. And therefore, uh, we've got this episode over drinks and it's going to be a great episode, too. Yes, we are talking to Greg Hillis. Greg is a professor of theology and religious studies at Bellarmine University and the author of the book, Man of Dialogue, Thomas Merton's Catholic Vision. Yeah, Thomas Merton is such a huge figure in American Catholicism. Um, you know, Pope Francis quoted him uh, when he spoke to the U.S. Congress uh, back in uh, 2015. And I feel like people who are like a generation slightly above us are are, are obsessed with him. Yeah, I, I did read Seven Story Mountain, his his famous autobiography, spiritual autobiography, but that was kind of the limit of my knowledge of him. And he he is so much writing. He was a man who wrote a lot of letters on on racism, on nuclear weapons, on interfaith dialogue, interreligious style dialogue. So I this book is just such a good introduction to all of those areas. Yeah, and I you know I was not really aware of this, but Merton's Catholic identity like really got called into question uh, after he died because he was so interested in inter religious dialogue. Yeah, people um, suspected he was a closet Buddhist. Yeah, and and what Greg's book does is really presents like a full Catholic vision of who Merton is. Um, so that's a great conversation coming up. But before that, we're going to talk about, during Signs of the Times, some pretty radical changes that Pope Francis just instituted in the church this week. And then during As One Friend Speaks to Another, we're getting into the issue of whether or not we pray before meals in public. So stick around for that. But first, a word from our sponsors. So. There's so much attention on the war in Ukraine right now. I, I I feel like it's exposing in me. Like I realized I know very little about that region, Eastern Europe in general. Yeah, totally. And it, it can be really overwhelming to witness these you know huge historical world events. And for me, it's really helpful to get some context. And so that is why I've been watching this new program from Wondrium called A History of Eastern Europe. It's really comprehensive. It goes all the way back to like the founding migrations of the region and then up to the last Ukraine crisis when Russia invaded in 2014. Yeah, no, that's super useful. And you know that's just one of, you know, a number of history courses, but Wondrium has courses on all kinds of things, philosophy, travel, language, literature. Um, and if you're if you're someone who really likes to go deep and, and, and learn, uh, it's created for people like you, people like us. Uh, and so Ashley and I just want to say we highly recommend signing up for their annual plan through our special URL. Our listeners get a special offer of just $99 for the first year, which is which is huge because that's a 58% savings from the monthly plan. Right. And a fraction of what you would pay to learn these things in a college course, plus no homework. You'll get premium ad-free unlimited access to learn from some of the world's brightest minds, including Wondrium's entire collection of videos, which, you know, if you're familiar with the great courses, it's that and other exclusive content. Yes. So be like us. Sign up for Wondrium today. Right now, our listeners get a free trial when you sign up for a discounted annual plan. And to get this special offer, you go to our URL. That's wondrium.com slash Jesuitical. Don't wait. That's W-O-N-D-R-I-U-M dot com slash Jesuitical. 
And now we have Signs of the Times, the part of our show where we sift through the Catholic news of the week so you don't have to. What's our story, Zach? So big news from the Vatican this week. Pope Francis released a new document that is a pretty radical revision to how the Catholic Church is governed. And on the surface, the news is that he he rewrote the constitution of the Roman Curia, but uh, we're, we're going to try to explain why this is such a big deal, what the Roman Curia is, and how this is going to impact you know everyday Catholics. Right. So first, what is the Roman Curia? These are the various offices that make up the Vatican governance. They have pretty deep roots. What we think of now as the Curia got its formal structure in the 16th century. And like, you know, people say the church changes slowly. slowly yes. So, so it, it, it's pretty much kind of like it was back then. Yeah. A lot, most of the offices that were instituted then are still the same offices. But you know, under especially since, you know, Second Vatican Council, there's been a real big effort to reform the Curia. And, you know, during the 2013 conclave where Pope Francis was elected, this was like one of the main issues on uh, all the cardinal electors minds. It's like, all right, whoever this next pope is going to be, he's really got to fix the sort of bureaucratic mess that the Roman Curia has become. And so nine years later, we finally have this document from Francis. Yes, it's called Predicate Evangelium, Preach the Gospel. And some of, so we'll talk some of it about kind of the surface level changes that were made and then maybe get into what that really means for the church. Um, so it merges a lot of uh, congregations and pontifical councils, and uh, they are now just called dicasteries, which is Vatican speak for office. office so an office, we're just, yeah. we're going to say office. Yes. <laughs> Um, and, you know, one of the and he kind of like reorders them and shuffles them around mm-hmm. too. you know, previously, the I guess the highest ranking office in the Vatican was always uh, congregation for the doctrine of the faith, which basically ensured the integrity of the Catholic belief system all around the world. Right. So it, when the Inquisition happened, it was under the, it had a different name back then, but it was this this office. Yeah. And in right. So that na- tells you something about the priority. Of exactly. The and, and, you know, one of the main emphasis of the new constitution is it's uh, really pushing the church's evangelical nature. Right. And, and, and making sure that the Vatican is is, ser- is serving in that responsibility and the and, and the Pope's responsibility to do that rather than sort of being like a um, ensuring that you know Catholic or- Orthodoxy is you know intact. They're they, they're still going to do that for sure, but it is no longer the top office. Um, right, and and part of that evangelical mission involves um, empowering lay people. That was something that came out of Vatican II, this idea that the the people of God are are the chief evangelizers in the world. <laughs> There's just a lot more of us than there are priests and bishops. And yeah. so, but that kind of, it was recognized at the Vatican Council or at the Second Vatican Council, but it hadn't really translated into how the Curia worked up to this well, point. Well, I think because part of this is because, you know, there are more lay people out in the world and it was sort of take, you know, a given that like, okay, lay people are evangelizers out in the world in their normal lives, but are, does that mean that they're you know they share in the like running running of the church? Mm-hmm. Um, not necessarily. Um, now uh, it's been made really clear that lay people can you know run Vatican offices if they were ever appointed. This you know hasn't been done before, and the Constitution explicitly says so. And at a press conference at the Vatican, where some representatives were ex- explaining the the new Constitution, um, they said that the power of governance in the church does not come from the sacrament of holy orders, but from one's mission, which is, you know, that's a really big deal. Yeah. And one thing that I appreciated about this is that they're not just making this decision because there are, you know, a priest shortage. <laughs> they recognize that lay people are, they describe it as indispensable, that because of their their life with their family and out in the world, they have a perspective that is is important for the church to hear and to, you know, shape how the church is governed. Yes. And so moving on to the next big, you know, change, and this one's a bit more cerebral, I suppose. But as we know, and we've talked about on the show a lot, one of Francis's main priorities is pushing for a more communal church, a more synodal church. Um, And that has to be understood in contrast to the way the church thought of itself um, before, um, which was, you know, kind of like an absolute monarchy with very strict hierarchies. And Vatican offices sort of fell under that, right? Like, so there was the, the the Supreme Pontiff and everybody sort of served under him. And all those offices kind of carried this giant weight of the Pope uh, when they when they talked to people. So it, this is where the expression of like getting a call from Rome or getting, getting sent to Rome or to be talked to is like a bit like getting sent to the principal's office. And now the idea is that like the Vatican offices are not supposed to be these agencies that like 
are, are, are managing from top down, but rather offices that are helping the rest of the church you know, live out their mission. They're, they're sort of there to be aides to help the rest of the church rather than sort of control. We aren't going to get into everything it does, but I do think one other important point to make is um, it it makes the Pontifical Council for the Protection of Minors a standing part of the new dicastery for for doctrine. So it really signals how how seriously um, Pope Francis and the Church is taking the abuse crisis. Yeah. And as always, if you want to learn more about this, you can listen to our friends on Inside the Vatican. Uh, Colleen Dully, the host, also has a really great explainer that breaks down some of these takeaways. So we will link to that in the show notes. And now stick around for our conversation with Greg Hillis. Joining us from Louisville is Greg Hillis. Greg is a professor of theology and religious studies at Bellarmine University and the author of Man of Dialogue, Thomas Merton's Catholic Vision. Welcome to Jesuitical, Greg. Thank you. Thanks so much for coming on the show. We've been looking for a way to get into this topic for a long time because Merton, I feel like, is uh, a huge figure for you know our parents' generation, our grandparents' generation, um, and, and young people today too, but everybody talks about, you know, being influenced by him. He, I know he's written a ton of books, but we haven't quite found a way to like crack this open for like a young adult audience. And, and I feel like this book does a really good job of it. So A, congratulations, and B, thank you for coming on the show. Yeah, thank you. I wonder if we could start just a little bit with this anecdote you describe in the early 2000s where the US bishops were putting together like a catechism book where they wanted to like highlight American Catholics who'd made positive contributions to the church and sort of at the last hour, Merton's name gets removed from it because then Bishop Donald Worrell says, I'm paraphrasing, we don't know everything about the end of his life because there are these rumors that he became a, a Buddhist monk towards the end of his life. Could you like describe a quick biographical sketch of, of Merton and why people think that this was problematic at the end of his life? So there are kind of two Mertons that people read and like. Uh, those who are, I think, on the uh, more traditional end of things really like the Merton of the Seven Story Mountain, his autobiography, where he talks about becoming Catholic, entering into a monastery, and he tends to be just like a little bit judgmental about other religious traditions, other Christian traditions. He's a bit triumphalist, you know, about being Catholic. He's, he kind of has the zeal of the convert. And when he enters the monastery, he enters the monastery with a sense that he's leaving behind a world that is just evil, right? That he needs to get out of the world and the monastery is going to be the way in which he sort of preserves himself um, unsullied. Which is like, if I admit, my general understanding of what I think of when I think of becoming a monk, right? Or at least right. traditionally, that's like the, the pitch anyway, is that you can, you can leave all this behind and kind of focus on the yeah. interior life. Yeah. And and so for a long time, Merton did just focus on the interior life. He wrote uh, for the first, I would say, uh, 15 years of his writing career at the Abbey of Gethsemane. He wrote primarily on prayer and contemplation, you know, things that monks should write about if they're going to write at all. What, what years are we talking about real quick? Just like rough sketch. He entered the monastery in 1941. And um, he died in 1968. So his, uh, he wrote his first publication was actually a book of poetry, but The Seven Story Mountain came out in 1948. Um, and I would say between 1948 and like 1958, he's writing primarily about prayer and contemplation. He's writing poetry. He's writing some autobiographical stuff. But, you know, his focus is on spirituality. But in the late 1960s, he starts to be much more concerned about things that are going on in the world. Um, he starts to look at things like the civil rights movement. He starts to learn more about the rise of nuclear proliferation. He starts to look at um, the real possibility of nuclear annihilation. Moreover, and this was really forward-looking at the time, he starts to look at other Christian traditions and other religions. 
he sees that a primary problem that we have as humans is that we divide from one another. And one of the ways we've divided from one another is along religious lines. So he starts to engage in ecumenical and interreligious dialogue. And that's the, the Merton that some people find very worrisome, those Catholics who are more on the traditionalist end of things, because they worry that he's kind of selling out Catholicism in order to find a sort of lowest common denominator um, uh, point of congruity with, with, uh, with other religions. And the fact that he ends up going to Asia and spends three months in Asia and then ends up dying in Asia just kind of fueled rumors that maybe he was looking to leave Catholicism to become a Buddhist monk or something like that. Mm. So it, we want to get more into your kind of your defense of Merton's Catholicity, but I'm wondering just you're, you're talking about, you know, this this dialogue he's having, he's looking at world events. How practically is he doing this? Like he's in a he's in a monastery. They did not have <laughs> Twitter back then to, to keep track on what's going on in the world. So how is this? How is he? How does he create this openness to the world from his hermitage? What I like, Ashley, is that you're suggesting that Twitter can be a vehicle for dialogue. <laughs> <laughs> implicit in the question um, which I find interesting <laughs> but um, anyways uh, so he wrote so many letters and received so many letters so the Merton Center here at Bellarmine University has um, 20,000 letters that he wrote and received um, to about 2,000 different um, people and how does that I mean is he like a famous monk at this point, right? Like, is, did yeah, and in fact, this is only those letters are only the last eight to ten years of his life, because uh, it was only then that he was keeping carbon copies of his letters and keeping letters that he received. So there, there actually are way more letters than that out there. Um, it's just that's what we have. So those twenty thousand letters are really only from the last ten years of his life. And what and who are the recipients? They range from um presidents, uh popes, to children who wrote him and he would write back about like one little kid wrote and said, Do you like Johnny Cash? <laughs> and he wrote back and was like, Yeah, I really like Johnny Cash. I mean, who doesn't, right? So, you know, letters like that. But He's also writing people like D.T. Suzuki, who was um, a Japanese Zen master, and they engaged in a really um, thorough correspondence. He was also writing to um, a Pakistani Sufi uh, named um, Abdul Aziz, who just wrote him, uh, Abdul Aziz wrote Merton just kind of on a whim uh, because he recognized in Merton somebody that he could dialogue with. And the two of them engaged in a correspondence that lasted for almost 10 years. So these, these that's kind of how the dialogue happened through letters. But also, uh, he had all kinds of visitors. So here in Louisville, it's a pretty ecumenical place and uh, has a history of ecumenism. And so the um, students from uh, the Baptist Seminary, for example, went down to hang out with Merton and have conversations about Catholicism. Um, students from Asbury Seminary here in Kentucky went went there. Students from Vanderbilt in Nashville. So that's how it worked practically. I feel like I'm so stuck on how does a monk become famous? <laughs> and like, how does he become so popular? Is it, is it, is it the yeah. writing just like hits home with people or, or what's going on? It was the Seven Story Mountain. So when he wrote that book, which he, he, he did... You know, he was asked to write it by his abbot. Uh, the abbot thought that he had a story to tell, and and he did. When that book went to press, there really wasn't a sense in which it was going to be. Uh, the editors didn't think that it was going to be such a a, a seller, but the book sold six hundred thousand copies in the first year alone, which is massive. It would be massive now. Um, it was massive in nineteen forty eight. And what's so, your what's your take on why it was so popular? It, it's the immediately after World War II, um, people had uh, a sense that the world had, had just gone through something that was cataclysmic and uh, the ground had shifted and they were looking for stories of people who had it figured out. So, because it wasn't just Catholics who were reading Seven Story Mountain, it was um, a New York Times bestseller. 
it, it was selling everywhere. I'm kind of relieved to learn that his abbot asked him to write it because my my thought was anyone who's decides to write their autobiography at that young of age is probably pretty full of themselves. Well, <laughs> uh, I, I do think Merton was a little bit. Okay. Little yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Everyone, anyone has to, I, like, I don't know. He like wrote all these letters and like knew going forward that like, okay, we're going to save these for posterity's sake. But, uh, but, but even he um, had some regrets about the way he wrote about the faith in Seven Story Mountain that you kind of alluded to before. So what was what was the shift in his perspective on on the Catholic faith that we can take from that? Well, he never disowned the Seven Story Mountain. Uh, he he liked it. He still thought very highly of it as a book. Uh, it was a book written by somebody who was fairly immature in the faith. So there are two things that he found problematic with the book, looking at it later on. One was that he felt that he was too zealous about Catholicism, right? Not that he ever regretted being a Catholic in any way. He, he loved being Catholic. But um, this sense that the Catholic Church was really the only way he felt was kind of problematic. Um, and, and that led him to a judgment, uh, a judgmental attitude towards other religious traditions and, and Christian traditions that he regrets that. But then the other is that it's, it really does portray the world in a negative light. Um, and Merton came to understand that there's great beauty and truth and goodness in the world. The Seven Story Mountain doesn't portray that. One of those big conversion moments you describe in the book, this experience on, on, on Walnut Street, right? Could, you, right? could you tell our listeners when that happened and what Merton experienced? So here in Louisville, there's actually a plaque, uh, which I think I, I would like to know if this is the case, but it seems to me to be the only plaque in the United States that commemorates a mystical experience. Um, <laughs> you know. But he was on the corner of 4th and Walnut. It's now, if anybody visits Louisville, it's now the corner of 4th and Muhammad Ali. We don't know why Merton was in town that day. It was March 18th, 1958. Um, but he was walking downtown. And at that moment, he came to a realization that he deeply and thoroughly loved every person on that street corner. And he came to understand that he was intrinsically united with them, that even though he was behind the walls of a cloistered monastery, that there was nothing that he could do that could prevent the very real union that exists between him and those people and also those who are in in the rest of the world as well. And he really looks at them through the lens of the incarnation. He said, look, we're all human beings and God became a human being. And by becoming a human being has bestowed on humanity this incredible value and dignity and has demonstrated the profound love that God has for all humanity. And if only we could all see each other that way, Merton says, right? If only we could all see each other through the lens, uh, uh, through the lens by which God sees us, right? Through this incredible love. He says there would be no more war, no more hatred, no more greed. The biggest problem would be that we would be tempted to fall down and worship each other, uh, which I think is a wonderful line, right? That he, he just comes to see the inherent value of each and every person. And it's not an accident that it's shortly after that experience that he had that he really starts engaging with issues in the world more fully, that he came to realize that he had a responsibility towards people. Yeah. So let's dig into some of those issues. So one that seems uh, particularly relevant right now is is his um, commentary on on nuclear war, nuclear weapons. So can you kind of give us the context of the world that he was he was living and writing about and and what he had to say about it? Yeah. So I'm 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 teaching two classes right now on Thomas Merton, and I I often teach on. Thomas Merton. And usually when we read his anti-war writings, my students see it as kind of outdated. Uh, that's not the case this semester. The context out of which Merton is writing is a, a Cold War context where uh, both the Soviet Union and the United States are engaged in uh, a battle of chicken where they are um, each uh, developing huge amount of nuclear weapons uh, that are pointed directly at one another. And in the United States, we have people who are advocating for a first strike against the Soviet Union, that we should just 
nuke the Soviet Union. Not just people, but like Catholics and bishops. Like Catholics and bishops, yes. Yeah. Uh, so a lot of Catholics. So this this disturbed Merton greatly. That's the context in which he was writing. And what is uh, what's the? How does he try to convince <laughs> Catholics and bishops that you know nukes are bad? Which I, admittedly, I have a seems obvious to me, but I know that if I had been alive that time, we might ne- necessarily have had that same view. Yeah. Well, he, he points to the church's tradition. He goes all the way back to the teaching and example of Christ, looking, and then he looks at early Christians, but then he looks at the writings of 20th century popes, particularly Pope Pius XII, Pope John XXIII, and Pope Paul VI, uh, and what they had to say about nuclear proliferation. But with, re- with, with reference to the, the figure of Jesus and what Jesus had to say, you know, he, he basically just points out that you know, instead of fighting, Jesus chose the cross, right? That instead of, um, instead of fighting back, which, which as Christians who believe in the incarnation, you know, Jesus could have done, uh, he instead chose the path of suffering, uh, the path of, of humility. I mean, he, he says it, it's problematic enough that uh, Christians can see themselves as, um, uh, as it being permissible to fight in a war, Right. Although he acknowledges that the just war tradition is a is a good tradition and it's one that he accepts, um, he still thinks that that's that it's somewhat problematic that we'd be willing to engage in violence at all. But he says with nuclear weapons, the just war tradition just goes completely out the window. The just war tradition came out at a time when we're looking at hand to hand combat, not megatonnage of nuclear destructiveness. And so he, he became a practical pacifist as a result of nuclear weapons, and he draws on you know, Pope's teachings uh, about that to, to essentially convince his fellow Catholics that, look, this is not an option available to us. I thought it was, uh, I don't know, funny is the right word, but um, his abbot orders him to stop writing about war. Um, and then John XXIII's encyclical, Pachamenteris, comes out and Merton tells the superior, like, good thing the Pope doesn't have to go through our censorship process. Otherwise, <laughs> yeah. it would have never been published. Uh-huh. But, yes. but, but the abbot is like, makes the point back to him, like, this is, well, Pope should be doing that. Monks should not be writing about war. Like, it was fine when you were writing about, you know, meditation and contemplation and your own vocation story, but, but stop wading into social issues. Is that right? Yeah, it's not his immediate abbot. It's the abbot general of the the whole of the the Trappist order, the Cistercian order, um, who uh, for whatever reason really didn't like Merton writing on on war. Um, and so while he, while the the abbot general told him that he wasn't allowed to publish anymore, his immediate abbot um, gave didn't sort of turned a blind eye to allow Merton to publish. Um, indirectly through mimeograph, which is like an old-fashioned photocopier. And so he wrote books and then had monks run his books through a mimeograph machine, and he mailed them to people all around the United States and elsewhere. So even when he wasn't allowed to write, he was, he was still, he, he obeyed the letter of the law, uh, but not the, maybe not the spirit. Mm. All right, so we want to jump to another section of the book, and and this one on on the affair that he had uh, while he was a monk. Uh, can you can you give us the basic outline of of what happened there? Yeah, so I wasn't going to write about this, but um, you know, Gary Wills wrote an article for Harper's Magazine, I think, in April two thousand nineteen, criticizing Merton as a pseudo monk uh, and and pointing to this relationship that he had with a woman. Uh, a nurse named Margie Smith. And what happened was in the summer of 1966, March 1966, Merton came into town uh, here in Louisville to have surgery on his back. And he woke up and one of the nurses who was caring for him was uh, a young nurse um, in her 20s, early 20s. um, And the two of them essentially fell in love. And I have to admit that the relationship itself I don't endeavor in the article in the chapter to defend the relationship. I think there are a lot of really problematic things about it. Um, there's a, for example, there's a huge power differential between Thomas Merton, this famous monk, and this young nurse. That you know, I think that has to be acknowledged. And honestly, I was also asking questions about 
you know, was this a really fully consensual relationship, which I think we have to ask that question in our present day and age, especially in the Catholic Church. I did a lot of of background on this, and I asked a lot of people to read through this chapter to make sure that I was covering all my bases. But it, it's clear that the relationship was totally consensual, that they really did love each other, but that Merton was making a huge mistake and misstep um, just by virtue of, like I said, the power differential. Um, That relationship can sometimes shock people and make them feel like, oh, should I really be listening to this guy? But I think there's, uh, I think we have to put it in context. And that's what I write about in the chapter. The the context of it is this, that um, Merton had never had good relationships with women. His relationships with women were almost always um, one-sided, where he wasn't really treating women uh, with the kind of dignity and value that they have. He, he was just in a relationship of, of domination with them, right? And just sort of using them. And this was a relationship where he like actually fully fell in love and he had absolutely no idea what to do with it. I mean, his journal entries during this time are embarrassing. Um, they, they read like, um, uh, like a, like a, somebody in high school, not like a guy in his fifties. Um, the relationship ends up coming to an end and largely because the abbot finds out about it. <laughs> um, but I think it's instructive for us to pay attention to how the abbot dealt with it. He didn't freak out. The abbot didn't freak out. He understood that this was um, probably like a, a, a normal thing that um, monks will go through, particularly a monk like like Merton, who had never had this kind of relationship before. So he just basically calmly said, "Well, you have to break it off, right?" And that uh, there weren't any really other punishments. There's just you have to break it off. So you know he did. I'm I'm very glad you wrote about it because I had heard. A vague notion of that, you know, Merton had an affair and basic sketches of the outline, but having the chance to like sit with his journal entries from the time and his own like interior conflict about, um, you know, I, I've chosen this life, um, but I'm I'm in love. What do I do with that? I, I found to be such a, a humanizing aspect of Merton. Which he and he, he says that he knows he should probably not uh, in try to meet up with her again. He shouldn't, you know write her another letter or whatever. But I feel like that that's what love often does to people, makes them make bad choices. It is kind of this all-consuming thing that can happen. And I, it seems that he has an idea, like he doesn't try to eradicate this from the record of himself that he that he leaves on for people, right? Like he he, he keeps the the references to Maggie in, in all of his journals and, and he knows he's doing that. It's very intentional. It, it is. And and so he knew by the time he got, we get to 1966, you know, he, he is a famous monk. And the reason why he started keeping, for example, the carbon copies of letters that he was writing was because people told him, hey, you should do that, right? Like Merton was just throwing stuff away. He didn't think it was worth, you know, keeping or preserving or anything like that. But people said, hey, you should keep it. Um, and, and so he came to the realization, I think pretty early on, actually, that people were probably going to read his journal, uh, his private journals. And uh, the one stipulation he made was that they couldn't be um, published until 25 years after his death. Uh, the hope was, I think, that everybody that he wrote about would be dead. But Merton died early, so everybody that he wrote about was pretty much still alive. Well, and, and, Mag- and, and Maggie, the woman in, in the relationship, is still alive. As far as I know. Yeah, I mean, it's, that, Mar- it's Margie. Yeah, Margie but, yeah. Sorry, Margie. Yeah. But that, like, yeah. that absolutely floored me. That yeah. um, a lot of uh, there are a couple things that the trust is withheld be- to pr- respect her privacy, but that's yes, kind of just yeah. wild connection to history that's still still around. Yeah, so it would be nice, you know. I'd love to talk to her about her relationship, but also I'm kind of glad that she just kept it silent. And and so Merton himself, you know, he wrote this all of it about this in the journals. And like I said, it's embarrassing stuff. I mean, it's like. If you go back and read your junior high journal or something like that from middle school, like it's like that. And Merton just kept it all in. He could easily, I've seen the journals themselves. He could easily just have torn the pages out, but he doesn't, right? He keeps them in. And he says, if I'm going to be known, I'm going to be known for my foibles uh, as well as as that which is good in me. And I, I, for me anyways, without defending the relationship, 
that seems to me to manifest a profound humility. So we want to move to Merton's uh, interfaith engagement. But before we talk about like how he related to other faiths, I, I kind of want to nail down his own Catholicism. So he's he's writing, it's around Vatican II. Would you describe him as like a Vatican II Catholic? Or what was, what was the flavor of his Catholicism uh, toward the later part of his life? He describes himself as a progressive with a love for tradition. Uh, which I think is a nice way uh, it, it's a, it encapsulates precisely who he was because uh, he's, I wouldn't call him a Vatican II Catholic or anything like that. He was enthusiastic about the council. He, th- he thought that the, the council was a good thing. He was even enthusiastic about the changes to the liturgy. And then later on, he became much less enthusiastic. In fact, he was quite critical about the, the liturgical reforms that were taking place. And one could call him, you know, really almost a traditionalist when it came to the liturgy. Um, so he's kind of notoriously difficult to, to pin down. But in terms of his own Catholic identity, what you have to know is that he was a monk. But I think even more importantly than that, he was a priest who celebrated the Eucharist every day and who took that, um, uh, that role as a priest celebrating the Eucharist with utmost seriousness. So moving a little bit towards... Uh, the end of the very end of his life becomes very interested in in a religious dialogue and in, in, in dialogue in general. What what sparks that interest for him, and and how does it manifest? What he feels like he needs to do is to find points of connection with everybody, uh, whether it's politically, uh, racially. He wants to find. He talks about this in terms of the need for us to affirm what we can in others not begin from a position of negation, but affirm what we can in others. And so Merton, that, that's really his, uh, the starting point for his dialogue. And one of the things that he noticed when he would study, for example, Sufis, um, or uh, when he would study the writings of Buddhists, is that despite the very real theological differences that exist between these religions, there is a profound amount that he could relate to and affirm in terms of their own experiences of the transcendent. That's his starting point for dialogue is that, you know, we actually can come to get to know each other really thoroughly if we focus on that which we hold in common rather than trying to uh, iron out the very real differences that are never going to be resolved. People listening today might say, "Like, well, yeah, obviously," <laughs> but but at at that time, that it, it was kind of revolutionary what he was was what he was saying, right? Like, and how are how are Catholics of the day responding to that? Well, they're a little bit freaked out by it. Um, uh, they're but they're more honestly, they're more freaked out by his not to return to this subject, but they're more freaked out by his anti-war writings. So. You know, for example, here in Louisville, um, there were book burnings for Merton's writings, um, uh, not about his interreligious dialogue, but about him advocating against nuclear war. Uh, and there were letters to the editor um, of the Archdiocesan newspaper saying, like, you know, this guy's a fraud, et cetera. But, but at the time, yeah, his interreligious dialogue it was very much at the forefront. Of course, um, Pope John the Twenty Third and the Second Vatican Council really moved the church forward in terms of this dialogue. And I think it's worth noting that um, one of the things we have at the Merton Center is a stole, uh, a papal stole that Pope John XXIII gave to Thomas Merton as a gift to sort of recognize that on the topics of peace, as well as on the topics of interreligious dialogue, um, they were completely in tune with with each other. I just want to like maybe tie a bow on the interreligious dialogue with a quote from Merton that you you, you have in the book from his uh, book, Conjecture of a Guilty Bystander. And he says, I will be a better Catholic, not if I can refute every shade of Protestantism, but if I can affirm the truth in it and still go further. So too with the Muslims, the Hindus, the Buddhists, etc. This does not mean the careless friendliness that accepts everything by thinking of nothing. There's much one cannot affirm and accept, but one must first say yes where one really can, um, which I, I just like really love that. And I can see the the shift 
in my own life, like ways I used to think about dialogue, about, you know, you have to be able to refute and uphold and defend the thing that, that you're attached to. But this idea of saying, saying yes where someone can and you becoming a better Catholic for it, I find really beautiful. I'm wondering, uh, is you know, we move to wrap this up, if Merton continues to be relevant to, to new generations, why do you think that is? And, and how did the, the young people that you're teaching um, right now that are undergraduates, how do they respond to someone who's kind of a, a complicated figure in American Catholic history? Like what's so enduring about his life? Well, I think the fact that he was so human is, is, is one of the things that um, compels my students. Uh, he's a figure who we can relate to. The Cemetery Mountain talks about a guy who is struggling with all the kind of things that we struggle with um, and that, that we maybe did struggle with as young people. I mean, that's how I came to be interested in Merton was, was reading The Seven-Story Mountain and, and relating to him in that way. But, one, but what, they're, what young people, uh, my students in particular, relate to are two things. One is his um, call to contemplation. Students, undergrads, especially over the last two years, it has been incredibly difficult on them. It's been difficult on everybody, but it's been difficult on them uh, in terms of their mental health. And already, you know, I've been teaching here at Bellarmine for 14 years, and I've seen the level of anxiety and depression uh, rise among my students um, every single year. And the thing that my students find incredibly insightful about Merton is what he has to say about the need for silence and contemplation to come to understand not only who we are in relationship to God, but who we just are, right? I mean, Merton is clear that you don't have to be a monk. You don't have to be a nun. You don't have to, you don't even have to be uh, part of a religious tradition to engage in contemplation, to engage in that kind of silence. Um, you, all of us need that silence, and without it, we are less than human. And my students really—that really resonates with them. Do you think so they're we, hearing that from other places in the church? It, like no. that contemplation is not the—you know—when you think of Catholicism, the first thing that comes to mind. No, and in fact, the thing that they say, and and it, it's every semester they say this, is that my Catholic students would say, well, "Why weren't we taught this?" in school why weren't we taught this in catholic school the, the deep and rich contemplative tradition that catholicism has uh they don't know anything about it and yet i think that it's one of the greatest gifts that the church has and and merton is can be a, an incredibly helpful vehicle for um communicating that gift so we actually practice silence in class I, i've given it as assignment they have to spend 10 minutes a day in silence in meditation and we begin every class and take with 10 minutes of silence and meditation. And I'm already, they also have to journal like Merton journals. And, and a lot of them are, are journaling about their experiences of silence. And it's so beautiful. They're, they're finding it to be, not all of them, but many of them are finding it to be this just transformative experience. So that's one way that I think students really relate to him. The other way that they relate to him is... Um, what I, you know, really the focus of my my book, which is what he has to say about dialogue, because his understanding of dialogue has become more relevant, not less relevant, since the time that he lived. It's a cliche to say this, but you know, we're more polarized politically in this country than I think we've ever been, or that we have been in recent memory, and it, we're polarized in the church. Um, uh, profoundly polarized in the church. And so Merton's understanding of what dialogue looks like is theologically grounded. It's rooted deeply in the tradition itself. And it makes all kinds of sense to my students, whether they're Catholic or not. So those are the two ways I think that they find that they, that they connect really deeply with Thomas Merton. Well, the book is Man of Dialogue, Thomas Merton's Catholic Vision. And if you're looking for just like a, a, a very accessible but thorough introduction into Thomas Merton, I, I cannot recommend it highly enough. Um, Greg, congrats on the book. Um, and thank you for coming back on the show. Uh, we do have one final question for you. Sure. And we ask all our guests this, uh, and I think you've answered it once before. Um, but if you could canonize one person, living or dead, Catholic or not, fictional or real, who would it be and why? 
Yeah, I remember you asking this, and I don't even remember my response last time. Um, so I'm going to say my grandmother. That may be the response that I gave last time, but I don't care. Um, the my grandmother, uh, her name uh, was is Irma Hughes. Uh, she was a devout evangelical Protestant uh, Christian who devoted herself so fully to um, Jesus, and she had. And, and I say specifically Jesus because that was who she had a relationship with. She she talked to Jesus nonstop, and she would begin every prayer with "Dear Jesus." It was this genuine and profound friendship that she had with Jesus that uh, honestly continues to inspire me. Um, so that's who I would put forward. Nobody else knows her on on that's listening except me, but that's okay. <laughs> Saint Irma. St. Irma. Yeah, love it. I, then now to take you off, like, you did not canonize Irma last time. We, we've got word from our producer that it was, quote, unnamed person who invented baseball. <laughs> oh, okay. So still on yeah. brand for you. Um, but unnamed I, person. <laughs> I like the Irma answer better. So, uh, Greg, thanks so much for coming on the show. All right. Thank you. I appreciate it. Take a train ride just to see The Master of Arts in Sacred Scripture from the Oblate School of Theology fosters a love for God's Word through an in-depth study of the entire Bible. Courses may be taken full-time or part-time, in face-to-face or online. Visit the website for more information. That's ost.edu slash ma-sacred-scripture. And now it's time for some housekeeping. First, we talked a lot about evangelization during our Signs of the Times this week, and we have a really good conversation on that topic with Bishop William Walk. He's the bishop in Pensacola, Tallahassee in Florida, and and he had a, a pastoral letter last year on, on evangelization, and it was a very fun conversation. You can just tell when someone has joy in their life. He loves being a priest. He loves talking to young people, um, and we were really excited about it, so we wanted to release it early for our Patreon subscribers. So if you want to listen early, you can go over to patreon.com slash americamedia uh, and support the work Zach and I do here. We also uh, wanted to let you guys know that we we do still have spots available on our pilgrimage to Italy this fall. Uh, we're going in September. Um, if you're like me, I've got a little bit. I'm I'm ready to ready to travel. You know, pandemic is hopefully continuing to ease um, and recede, and it's I'm I'm really excited to get back out there. So if you are interested in going to Italy with us or have any questions, you know, reach out to us. You can send us an email Jesuitical at americamedia.org. But we're also going to post the link to the pilgrimage in the show notes. So check that out. And now we have As One Friend Speaks to Another, the part of our show where we talk about where we're finding God in our lives. And this week, we are going to talk about saying grace in public, you know, at a restaurant. So one, do you do that? Uh, not all the time Okay, would be my, my answer. Okay. I would actually say most of the time, no. Okay. Um, but I have before. How about, how about you? Yeah, I would say very rarely. Um, I can't. I can't think of a time I've done it. And so do you do you do the standard bless us our Lord and these are gifts when you do pray before a meal? Yeah, unless someone has asked me to um like say grace mm-hmm. in a way that it, I feel like you can tell by their tone if mm-hmm. they want you to or if they are Protestant they <laughs> they want you to, you know, try to improvise something a little bit uh-huh. more fleshed out. Um but otherwise, yeah, I don't see anything wrong with the the bless us our Lord thing. So this was sparked by an article that we published at americanmagazine.org um by Simka Fisher. It was are you embarrassed to say grace in public? Don't be. And it made me think like about why I don't say grace in public. And I don't think it's about being embarrassed about my Catholic faith. I think it's more about wanting to make other people comfortable. Like, I, you know, I don't want to weird people out. Like, if they, if they don't want to do it, then, like, <laughs> it just seems like 
I don't know, like rude, or maybe rude isn't the right word, but well, it feels like an imposition. Yeah, I can feel, I mean, you can just tell by listening to you, there's like yeah. a ping pong head <laughs> going back and forth because you're like, I wouldn't, if someone else was having some form of religious expression at the table with me, I would not feel like mm -hmm. they were being rude. And so, you know, why would we have a different standard for ourselves? But the thing I want to avoid is the temptation to think that we have to pray before a meal in public, which is or, or like that that's the only way to like acknowledge God in your day or something. It's a, it's a really easy way to do it, mm -hmm. I think. And it's I actually, you know, it's funny. I have a I have a story about this. When I was in college, one of my theology professors who I had not met, Dr. Michael Murphy, um, was brand new to campus. And we were at a pizza. Me and a friend were at a pizza joint. And we um, were both like theology majors, Catholic studies minors. And so we prayed before we ate the pizza. And this made Dr. Murphy feel just like he was brand new, didn't know anybody. He was like, wow, I'm like really at home. Like think like that's a good sign, I guess. Mm -hmm. um, so it really can be like a way to like, I don't know, just remind other people that there are other Catholics that are at, like trying to pray in their lives. And in addition to the actual spiritual benefit of being like, like, thank you, God, for the food that's in front of me. For me, it's also that I think it's something that I need to work on more broadly, like this idea that, like, I don't want to impose, like, I want to, like, give people mm. their space. And, like, so, like, it often happens, like, in meetings where I don't I hold back my opinion because I don't want to make other mm. people uncomfortable by by voicing it. So, like, I, I feel like there's a similar dynamic of being like, OK, I'm just going to not make myself too noticeable <laughs> and yeah no i think you're you're getting to something there i will say that something i do find imposing is when for americans do this thing where everybody has to like wait for all the food to come out before mm. we can start eating it all <laughs> that and, and, and the food just gets cold and like that and then we all just dive in as much as we can i would like to stop that yeah. maybe maybe a good formula um that's uh, mostly unrelated but something <laughs> if i if i can have any influence in this podcast i would like to influence the stop of that yeah that mannerism um but maybe we could all just start trying to say grace in public a little bit. Um, yeah. Especially, I think a good easy way to start is if like you're with like friends who you know would not be <laughs> weirded yeah. out, quote yeah, unquote, exactly. by this. All right. Next time we're out, we're doing it. Okay. Over <laughs> the next beer at the next <laughs> <Yeah>. bar. <laughs> All right, I will get us out of here. Jesuitical is produced by Sebastian Gomes with production assistance from Kevin Jackson and Kira Hanlon. Our sound engineer is Kevin Christopher Robles. Faith formation provided by Father Eric Sundrup. You can follow us on Twitter at Jesuitical Show. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash groups slash Jesuitical. Please subscribe to us wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And if you're on Apple or Spotify, leave us a review. Judge Whittacle is recorded in the William J. Loeshirt studio at American Media in New York City. For American Media, I'm Ashlyn Kinless with Zach Davis. We'll see you next week. Have you ever wanted to dive deeper into scripture? If so, you're in luck, because every day there's a new scripture reflection from the thoughtful staff at America Media, thinking through big questions together, like, what do Catholics believe about guardian angels? And what can Gen Zers take away from the Gospels? If you're already a subscriber, you can access these reflections in your email inbox or on our website. If you'd like to become a digital subscriber, it's easy to do. Just visit americamagazine.org slash subscribe, and you'll have full access to America's scripture reflections.